if you ever doubted that our God has a sense of humor. Today's confirmation of that. Having snow on the ground the week after we lose an hour of sleep uh, is no fun thing. Uh, But luckily, we get to be here together to worship our amazing God. So if you would, stand with us and sing. I don't know if you've yet taken the time to let the words of that song truly uh, sink in to understand what's going on there, that we're spending almost the entire song just inviting the Spirit to come into this place, to be with us. And then that ending, those few simple words, a miracle can happen now. Now that the Spirit is among us, we've invited Him, great things can happen. I just wonder today as you walk in the room, did you walk in expecting anything? Did you walk in, I mean, maybe you expected to get your warm coffee, that's nice. Maybe you expected to see a friend, but did you walk in expecting to see God do anything in your life? Why don't you go ahead and have a seat and think about that for a moment. What are you expecting today from God? What are you expecting? Communion. During Lent is a time that we take a little bit of extra time to be quiet, two minutes instead of one. And during these Sundays, we're focusing on one passage. We're just staying there. It's a passage found in Matthew. And uh, bring it on up, Elam. Let's see it. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, now that, we're going to take a whole week on that question because I wonder, do you even want to be his follower? If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And the implied answer, of course, is no. Nothing is worth more than your soul. So during the week, I I was having a conversation with a friend, and they asked, so that line, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. What in the world does that mean? We, We focused on that line last week and said, what is it that God wants you to give up in terms of giving up your own way? A lot of people, for Lent, they give up a something. They give up chocolate. They give up pop. They give up, they give up a little something that kind of reminds them of sacrifice in their life. Jesus is really calling for something far bigger, isn't he? He's not just calling for us to give up a, a food item or, 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 or some little thing that we do here or there. He's saying, I want you to completely give up the way you do life and do it my way instead. So what does that mean? I think it really comes down to a word that we don't think applies to modern life, but it implies way more than we think, and that is idolatry or idol worship. We have idols. We're idol worshipers. Now, you may not have a little statue on your mantle or something like that, 
but we're idol worshipers. And an idol comes down to this. What's my replacement God? What's the thing that I should be depending on God for in my life, and instead I'm holding on to something in the world that is my substitute God. It's become my spiritual pacifier. Instead of the real thing, instead of God, I've taken on some tool, some element, some habit, something that becomes my replacement God. Uh, we, can, we could just go through a list this morning of replacement gods. For some of us, our replacement God is worry. We worry so God doesn't have to. And God says, uh, wait a second, you didn't read the passage? Cast all your cares on me. So it may be that God is saying, it's time to hand your worry over to him. That's what you're going to give up, not just for Lent, but for life. And by life, I mean that's the way you will truly finally live. Uh, For some of us, it may be some kind of a, a physical substance Maybe we should be looking for fullness in God, and instead we find fullness in this great bag of chips and other snacks. And we're always filling with food and missing out on that longing, that starvation for God. Maybe it's found in a bottle or a pill, prescribed or non-prescribed. And we're just we're depending on all these things in our life when God's saying, Don't you understand? I want you to give up your own way. I want you to give up your idol. I want you to give up your idolatry and follow me. So we're, we're actually going to go here again this week because I think this question just uh, bears a lot of thought. During the silence, again, I'd ask you, what is your replacement God? What is your idol? Where is your area of idolatry? What is that thing that you're doing or you're holding on to that God says, I want to do that for you, and you keep saying, no, 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 I'm keeping my hands on the wheel. I don't know if I can trust you. And when you've identified it, would you just hand it over to him and say, I want to give this up? You know what? Maybe maybe you will give it up for Lent just to find out how life-giving it is. And then you'll move beyond just a few weeks to actually a life pattern of saying, Jesus, I trust you. Because that's what it means to give up our own way. It's to say, I trust you completely. So we'll think on that during our two minutes of silence. We'll come out of the silence and pray the Lord's Prayer together. And then we'll move to the stations around the room. The two in the back, the two on the sides are there for everybody. The two on the stage sides are are gluten-free if that's needed for you. And as you walk toward the cross today as you walk toward that symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus for your sin would you be reminded that he's asking you do you want to be my follower well if you do you have to give up your own way you don't get to hold on to your own way and be a follower of Jesus the two cannot coexist let's be quiet together together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
our servers are going to come receive the morning offering as they do. Uh, we're going to walk you through the announcements. The announcements are sent to you by way of the links, which is an email that we send out every single week with everything that you need to know. We're changing things up with the links, though. Normally, we've been sending it on Sunday morning, and we're going to change that. We're actually uh, going to start sending it on Saturday afternoon. So if, you were, if you've been signed up for the links, you actually got this email yesterday. And part of the reason for that is we want to prepare you for what's coming on Sunday morning. So if you, had, if you received the email yesterday, you would have seen that uh, the Bible Project video on the book of Job was sent to you, so you could kind of understand the, the book before we come to today's teaching. It also gives all the verses that we are going to be using on Sunday morning so that you can just prepare your heart, prepare your mind for Sunday and, and come in um, refreshed and ready for, uh, for what is happening on that morning. Uh, today's the last day to sign up for spring journey groups. So again, make sure that you're going to the website, southfieldchurch.com, and going to uh, check out all the different options that are available to you. One of those journey groups, uh, the men's Thursday morning group, is going to be meeting not here at church for the next two, two Thursdays, but instead they're going to be meeting at Teardrop Cafe in Manuka at 6.30 on Thursday morning, or the next two Thursday mornings. And I know that there's at least one person, John, he has to be super excited about that. Um, so if you're, if you're in that group, make sure that you, you head over um, and catch what's going on there at Teardrop. Finally, we are down to six weeks left to register for Green Lake, which is our, uh, our summer missions trip, and it, that's for all junior hires and high schoolers to come along. It's just a phenomenal trip, and I would really encourage you to catch a student or catch uh, Dora at the door, Don as he's walking around, Bob. There are so many people who are involved in this trip, and if you, so basically, if, if, you're, new to the, if you're new to Southfield or if you haven't heard about Green Lake before, you can pretty much ask anybody, and they'll be able to point you to someone who's been on this trip, and they can tell you just how wildly crazy and powerful uh, this trip is. So we'd love to have all of you come along, bring friends, uh, but yeah, so six weeks left to register for that. Uh, breaking your mother-in-law's heart today. Think about it. The girls in this family are named Aaron, oh. Riley, Ryan, Maggie, and Kate. What nationality might they be? Oh, maybe a little bit Irish. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Polish, hence the gray. I can't figure out green, but anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm telling. Yeah. She actually calls it, she calls it St. Aaron's Day. Yeah. It's not even Patrick, so yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm reporting you. I Thanks. will take a picture in the next service and post yeah. it. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So we're going to be looking at the book of Job today. And before we go there, uh, I want to answer a couple of questions. Uh, I, there's, this, there's this one journey group. I love it. I know when they meet because inevitably while they're meeting, I get a text. Hey, Explain this passage to us, or what's going on here, or I, we don't understand. I just love it. I love it. So I get these texts that come, and, and the other day a text arrived and says, the Satan, what's up with that? I don't get it. They had watched the Job video, and it made a reference to the Satan. And they're like, what, what, you know, what, 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 what is that? What's going on there? And you know, last week I made the comment that I, I really, I love the Bible Project. I love the teaching that they give. 
I think it's very scholarly, scholarly and helpful, and they do come from uh, an evangelical conservative perspective. But I do think there are times that, that they'll, they'll press some of the scholarly stuff to a point that I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. And let me explain what I'm saying. Like last week, we're looking at the Song of Songs, and it begins by saying, this is a Song of Solomon. And if it says this is a Song of Solomon, and then we're going to turn around and say, well, but technically it might not be Solomon, then I'm kind of wondering what I can believe in the rest of the book. Because it says it's a Song of Solomon. So I can appreciate that it's wisdom in the Solomonic tradition and all that sort of stuff. But, but the bottom line is, as a church, we, we try to take the Bible at face value where it can be taken at face value. So if it says this book was written by Solomon, then we say, well, then it must be written by Solomon. Because when we stop taking the Bible at face value, what we do is we say, if Solomon doesn't have to be the writer, then maybe I don't agree with everything in the book, and maybe I can go ahead and decide which pieces I can start a la carte the Bible. And I think that's problematic. We either believe what God wrote or we don't. And so in that case, you know, I, I still believe that Solomon was the writer of the book. And when you come to this, the Satan, basically we're, what we're going to learn this morning and what you learned from the video is that the word Satan fundamentally means accuser. He's an accuser. Guess what, guess what Satan's primary job is? His primary job is not to wear a red suit at Halloween. His primary job is not to go, boo! His primary job is to accuse you before God, to accuse you, to say, that person has no right to enter this heaven. They sinned. They did wrong. He is the accuser always coming to try to convince God that we don't deserve a relationship with him. And so when it refers to the Satan, some people have said maybe it's not a reference to Satan, but to just somebody who was accusing Job in heaven. Now, whether it's really Satan or whether it was an accuser, I don't know that that's as important as this. It was all about the accusation. It was all about the accusation. There was an accusation brought against this man. I truly believe it's Satan himself. That Satan, the ultimate accuser, is saying to God, look at this guy. He only loves you because you love him. He only loves you because you do good for him. And God has something to prove in all of this. So I hope that's helpful. Um, Again, I think that any, any source, we, we live in an era of just a phenomenal amount of information, and that's wonderful, and that's dreadful, because <laughs> you got to go picking through the dumpster trying to figure out what you want to eat, and so sometimes information, you're like, yeah, I, that, that's worth it, I want that, and sometimes you have to go, that doesn't smell right, and I've learned from my fridge, if it don't smell right, I don't eat it, so bottom line, Give it a good sniff. See what's going on there. Many people think the book of Job is all about Job. That that's what the story is about. But in reality, it's all about God. The story is really about God. In this powerful drama, God reveals a lot about himself. And along the way, we learn a lot about ourselves too. But the center of the book is God. He is in control. He delights in his creation. And he can be trusted. He really can. This book addresses the reality of suffering in life. But most of all, it gives us a window into the heart and character of God. The problems in the book of Job 
are the problems of the entire human race. They're the problems we all face. We can all find ourselves in the story of Job. In the beginning of the book, everything is the way it should be, right? It's, it's the way life is when it's at its finest. God has given Job a wonderful life. He's the richest man in the East. He's the greatest man in the land. The amount of blessing he experiences seems to be directly proportional to his obedience. It seems as if everything he's getting is because he's a man of incredible integrity. Job lives in a, in a land spelled U-Z. I've heard it pronounced us. I've heard it pronounced ooze. Personally, I'm going with us because ooze sounds icky. So anyway, and that's the way I make my Bible decisions. <laughs> what does it smell like? What does it sound like? Okay. <laughs> Trouble is coming to the land of us. Job, Job doesn't know it yet. He's not expecting it, but it's going to come like a tsunami. It is just going to sweep over him. Uz will be a place where very bad things are going to happen to a very good man. Uz will be a place where suffering with no warning will come and with no explanation. And this suffering is going to create confusion and despair beyond words. The hard truth is that every one of us will spend some time in the land of Uz. Every one of us. Some of you are there right now. Others just traveled through and are thankful that season is done. And some are about to open the door and have no idea that it's just around the corner. As we study Job, I think it's helpful to compare it to a play. Okay? It's written that way. Think of it as a play with two stages. An upper stage and a lower stage. And the upper stage is way, way, way up in the top of the theater, up near the ceiling, on that stage, the activity that takes place is the activity of heaven. The people on the upper stage can look down and they can see what's happening on the lower stage. They know what's going on down there. There's also this lower stage, and that's where the activity of earth is taking place. But the people on the lower stage can't see what's going on on the upper stage. We're in the audience. We get to see both the upper and the lower stage. As the readers, we get to see both at the same time. We watch this drama unfold. We're told to watch what's happening on both stages at the same time in order that we can understand. This is critical to the story. We know what's going on in both settings. But we have to remember that the characters on earth have no idea what's happening on the upper stage. They do not share our vantage point. They are aware of the activity around them, but not what's happening on the higher stage. They have a limited perspective, but we are able to see everything as it unfolds. In this portion of Job, Satan appears on the upper stage. He appears in heaven, but then he moves down to the lower stage. And when he does, Job loses everything. He is pummeled by loss and pain and heartache. Job's livestock, his wealth, his servants, and his children are all swept away. And when this happens, we see Job's response in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, Then Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and he fell to the ground, and don't miss the next two words, to worship. 
He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. We learn that, that as Job expresses his grief, he expresses his outward grief the way people did in those times. The tearing of clothing was a way of saying, I'm in grief and mourning. The shaving of head was the same. These were, these were clear signs to everyone. This is a man in mourning. We also see Job as he falls to the ground and does something that is not normative. He falls to the ground in worship. He speaks words of blessing and of praise to God. Job's response is both deep sorrow and true worship. In chapter 2, we switch back to the upper stage. God says to Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is, he is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from all evil. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan tells God the only reason, the only reason Job is a man of integrity is because God has treated him well. Of course he's going to, of course he's going to be obedient. You treat him well. If God allowed his body to be touched with pain, he would certainly curse God. Now from this point on, the action moves away from the upper stage and down to the lower stage. It's critical that we clarify what's going on in heaven. At first glance, the action in heaven looks strange and it looks confusing. It appears as if there's this cosmic wager going on between God and Satan. It seems as if God is using Job and his family as pawns to win a bet or to prove a point to Satan. But this is not what is going on at all. The key question on the upper stage and in the whole book is this. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan insists Job is devoted God and worships you because it's in his self-interest to do it. You scratch his back, he scratches yours. It's a quid pro quo. Satan is charging God with being naive. Part of the nature of Satan, as we've already said, is that he is an accuser. He accuses. That's literally what the word Satan means, accuser. When modern people think of the word Satan, they think pitchfork, little horns, red suit, cute image. It's just totally inaccurate. Instead, you should think of the slickest, cleverest, most deceptive prosecuting attorney you could ever imagine. Uh, that's not a statement on lawyers, by the way, okay? It's just, that's, that's what he is. You want to understand Satan a little bit better? I'd encourage you ladies to, to join that screw tape letter uh, study that's coming up. And guys have been asking, well, don't worry, we'll do it too at some point. But, but I think C.S. Lewis has a great handle on the way Satan works. We expect him to, you know, boo! We expect him to, to be so obvious and, and to be so dreadfully tempting and, you know, doing all these things. And instead, wow, his work is so subtle. It's so subtle. So I, if you want to learn more, get in that group. Let me draw a picture out for you of Satan from the New Testament. Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across heaven, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of, his kingdom, of the kingdom of Christ. 
For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them day and night before God. This is a picture of a courtroom. And God the Father is the judge. Satan is dressed in his $5,000 suit and he's got his hair slicked back. He's the ultimate prosecutor. And he does nothing but accuse and accuse and accuse. Satan, the accuser, is insisting that Job's devotion is based strictly on what he can get from God. Satan is saying that, that Job loves God the way children love ice cream, the ice cream man. He loves God the way, the way a drug addict loves his drug dealer. It's all a quid pro quo. Satan is arguing that if you turn off that faucet of blessing, watch how fast Job turns off his faucet of devotion. If Job is the best man on earth and the rest are worse than him, his response, Satan thinks, will speak volumes for the entirety of the human race. Satan is saying that the whole idea of a covenant of self-giving love between God and his people is a farce. It's all a joke. The reality of the universe is that everybody is looking out for number one and all of this is the ultimate quid pro quo. The writer of Job makes masterful use of irony throughout the entire book. The ultimate irony is this. We think this book puts God on trial. With all the suffering in the world, can God be good? On the lower stage, that is the primary question of the book. But we can also see that there is a God in heaven and this is really a book where the human race is on trial. Satan, the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, is pointing a finger at us. He's saying we're only good when God is good to us. Satan is saying people are nothing more than slaves to their own self-interest. The whole thing is a farce. People will only love God if they get what they want. God says, no, Satan, no. You have it all wrong. He makes it clear that the view presented by Satan is cynical, it is warped, it's misguided, and it is wrong. At the core of the universe is self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Human beings were made to receive this kind of love, and they were made to give this kind of love. They're capable of it. When they are experiencing pleasure, and even when they are experiencing the deepest of pain. After losing all of his possessions and his children, Job gets hit with a second wave of suffering. His body is afflicted with a level of pain that we cannot even imagine. And this time his response is different. He doesn't fall to the ground in worship. He doesn't say, may the name of the Lord be praised. This time, Job just sits on the ash heap. He just sits there. Maybe he's grieving. Maybe he's isolated. People are kind of afraid. Maybe he's a leper. Stay away. His wife speaks for the first time and the last time in the drama. Here's her statement. Are you still going to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, Mrs. Job gets criticized a lot by teachers and preachers. She's kind of an easy target right? Job's first response 
is a measured expression of sorrow and enduring worship. Her first response recorded is, curse God and die. But before we judge her too harshly, we must remember she's going through pain too. She's lost all she had too. She's lost all of her children. They're gone. Her husband is covered in sores. He's experiencing indescribable pain. A short time ago, she was part of the wealthiest family in the East. Now she and her husband are alone and they're destitute. Before we judge her too harshly, we should ask how we might react in a similar situation. These are two real people facing real feelings of pain and they're having real reactions. Job's response shows that he's, he's kind of struggling to understand God. He's trying to figure it out. Job 2.10 says, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all of this, Job said nothing wrong. The words, and never anything bad in that passage, can be translated, and not evil. Job is struggling to understand if God is the kind of being who sends evil on people. Is God really good? That's the question going on down on the lower stage. Then the text says, in all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is a hint that something's going on inside of Job. After the first wave of suffering that Job faced, we're told in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, after a second wave of suffering, there's a little qualification. Job did not sin in what he said. Job has begun to struggle in his heart. But he's not expressing it in words. Not yet. That will come. Job's friends plan to sit with him and take on the anguish he is experiencing along with him. When they see Job, they can hardly recognize him. They can't believe what he's going through. They heard it was bad, but nothing could prepare them for what they were seeing right now. Usually when someone is sick, you know, we, we walk into a hospital room or we walk into their house, and we, we come there to cheer them up. Have you ever had somebody come and visit you when you were sick and they looked at you and they burst into tears? That's what happens to Job. His friends see him and they're just, they're devastated by seeing what's happening with this man. And what they do next is remarkable. They just sit with him for seven days and seven nights and they do not say a word. They sit with him in silence. Seven days, seven nights. We just did two minutes of silence and communion, and some of your, your skin crawled off you and out of the room. It's making you crazy just two minutes. We were talking about the two minutes before the service. I was talking to Elam, and he says, that two minutes is long. And I said, hey, I do three-day silent retreats. And his eyes bugged out, like, how in the world can a human do that? Seven days and seven nights of just sitting in silence when we mourn with those who mourn and sit with those who are hurting, we're not trying to fix them. We don't come to give clever advice or make everything better. One of the greatest gifts we can give is simply our presence. 
It's interesting to note that the silence of Job's friends was brilliant. It was a gift. It was their words that become torment. Their silence was best. His friends are Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Naamite, and Dagum the Termite. Oh, you are still here. Good, yeah. Take that last one off. That's not true. That's not in the Bible. Where'd that come from? Finally, after seven days of silence, Job speaks. Imagine the tension that's built up after all that silence. Seven days have passed, and his friends are still waiting to hear what Job will say. Will he repeat the words of chapter 1? The Lord gave and the Lord take away. May the name of the Lord be praised. If he could just repeat those words again, we'd have a really short book in the Old Testament. But those of you who have read it know it goes on and on and on and on and on. We don't wait long to realize that his words will not echo the words of chapter 1. Look at chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Let the day of my birth be erased, as well as the night I was conceived. Let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high, and let no light shine on it. This is the kind of thing that uh, keeps Job off the motivational speaking circuit. You know, these aren't, these aren't happy words. This gets pretty dark pretty dark to curse your birthday, to curse the day you were conceived. Job will not curse God, but he does curse the fact that God made him. This seems like a, like a sneaky way of saying the same thing. And for the rest of the book, Job pours out a level of bitterness and confusion and sorrow and anger toward God that is staggering. Job spews so much venom that his friends can't stand it. They can't listen to it. And finally, they respond. And what we have in the rest of the book is a series of speeches. A friend will speak, and then Job will speak, and then a friend, and we go up and back. We can't look at all the speeches this morning, but we can identify the key themes of each of his friends. Eliphaz argues that the innocent don't perish, and the upright are not destroyed. In effect, he's saying, the innocent never suffer. What does he say? Job 4, verse 7. Stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? Hildad gets a little more direct. He says that Job's kids died because of their sin. They had it coming. His theory is that, that our sin is the result of our, or our suffering is the result of our personal sin and our rebellion. Job 8, 4. Your children must have sinned against God. So their punishment was well-deserved. Ouch. Zophar suggests that Job's suffering is the result of his personal sin. He calls Job to repent and to turn from his sinful ways. Chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. If only you would prepare your heart and lift up your hands to him in prayer. Get rid of your sins and leave all your iniquity behind you. Then your face will brighten with innocence and you will know and you will be strong and free of fear. The, the view of, of Job's friends is really the view of the primary theology of suffering of Job's days. And honestly, it's not much different than our own. In Israel and the surrounding area, this was the conventional wisdom. 
It's called the doctrine of retribution. The idea of this theology is simple. Goodness results in prosperity and blessing. If I'm good, I get a gumball. Wickedness results in suffering. If I'm bad, I get punished. In each case, when Job's friends put forth their theory, Job counters his argument and gives a defense. At one point, Job gets testy and he even gets a little sarcastic. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. He says, you people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. You're so smart. You're, you get it. Job's friends give voice to one central idea. Pain, suffering, and sorrow in this life are a direct consequence of personal sin. While this line of, of thinking is not unusual, it's so ironic in light of the real reason Job is going through this. Why is he going through this? Because Satan said, have you considered my servant Job? He's a man of integrity. And here they're saying the exact, op the exact opposite. Job suffers under the judgmental words of his friends. Along the way, he responds with these words, Job 6.14. One should be kind to a fainting friend, but you accuse me without any fear of the Almighty. Right in the midst of a battle of words, Job makes a remarkable statement about friendship. In other words, a real friend doesn't give up on you no matter what, even when it looks like your faith is on the ash heap. People in anguish often contradict themselves. Have you been in the presence of someone in real anguish? There is no sense trying to reason with them. They're, 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 they're living in contradiction, just trying to sort it out, trying to make sense of it, and it's not making any sense at all. They seem to just drive all over the emotional map. In Job 19, Job goes through all kinds of emotions Everything he feels and says doesn't make much sense. And he just, he just pours it all out. What a great reminder for us that God knows everything that is inside of us. And he allows us to express it honestly, even when it doesn't make sense. As Job goes on, he questions God. He clings to God. He hollers at God. He hollers to God. Mostly, he challenges God. And his boldness is staggering. Chapter 23, verses 3 to 4. If only I knew where to find God. I'd go into his court. I'd lay out my case. And I'd present my arguments. It's as if Job wants, wants to take God to court. He wants to sue God. Can you imagine that? Job is challenging God to show up and fight like a man. Come on, let's have at it. Well, guess what? In chapter 38, Job gets his wish. God shows up. God shows up in a storm. What do you think that moment was like? Do you think there was a little drama in that moment? Do you think the atmosphere was charged as God shows up in a storm? As he says, okay, Job, let's have a face-off. Let's go. For the next four chapters, God speaks and Job listens, and the friends listen, and they take it and take it and take it. Job and his friends remain silent. God has now come from the upper stage to the lower stage. Moreover, he has some questions for Job now. 
over and over. God asked Job about creation and how it came into being. He asked him about specific animals. He puts Job on the witness stand. Part of what is happening is that God is reminding Job that Job's perspective is finite. It is a limited view. Only God has the ability to see the whole story. By the end of the story, Job finds out what kind of person God is. And that's enough for him. The hinge, the resolution of the whole book is in chapter 42, verses 5 to 6. Job is speaking to God. He says, I've only heard about you before. But now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. And I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. This is enough for Job. He has heard, he has seen, and he is satisfied. When Job says he repents in dust and ashes, it's not his way of saying, now I'm going to live in low self-esteem or something like that. This is a Hebrew way of saying he is entering into a new strategy for living. He is saying to God, I can trust you and I know it. I can trust you. You you can almost hear Job declare, I can trust you with my children. And I know they are better off in your hands right now. I can trust you with my pain. I know that you redeem every last bit of it. You are the kind of God who treasures and cares for everything, and I can put my full trust in you. The book of Job ends with restoration and blessing. You look at chapter 42, verses 12 to 17, and we see that the Job is restored, his wealth is restored, his life is restored. He has children and grandchildren and, and just has a beautiful, rich life. Verse 16 says, Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died, an old man who had lived a long, full life. Satan was dead wrong about Job. He's also wrong about the human race. He was wrong about the universe, and he is dead wrong about God. The book of Job is not about some odd cosmic wager. It's written so you and I can know the truth about God and the truth about us. Job never got to look at the upper stage. He never realized that his faithfulness had meaning beyond his own life. This man has no idea that in 2019 we'd be talking about his story. Years and years and years and years later, he didn't know that something cosmic and eternal was taking place in his little life. When we sit on the ash heap, scraping boils off our skin with a broken shard from a pot, We don't always know what's happening on the upper stage. Even though we are sick and broken and mocked and confused and hopeless, that faithfulness is used by God to vindicate God and his whole adventure of covenant love. 
Job's honesty, his courage, his tenacity, and his perseverance have inspired billions of people who have lived in the land of Uz. And he speaks out to us today. He says, hang on. Keep going. Don't let go. Don't give up. Don't quit now. Some of those gathered and hearing this message today are in a season of pain and sorrow and suffering. This is the land of us for you. Why are you there? I don't know. How long will it last? I don't know. Does what you do and how you live make any difference at all? Does how you respond matter? More than you could ever dream. More than you could ever dream. The eyes of heaven are on our little lives as we travel through our land of us. What we do is of eternal and cosmic significance to God. And Satan is still doing his accusing. But I have some really good news. We have a defender. 1 John 2, 1-2. This great man writes, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, and it's his way of saying, and we will, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our own sin, but the sin of the whole world. As he accuses, you are not alone. God has hired the best defense you could ever receive. And Jesus wins every time. Every time. You can live with that kind of confidence. Father God in heaven, thank you for including the story of Job in your inspired word. Thank you for a man who lived with integrity and at the same time, who opened his heart to the deep questions and accusations that were stored up in him when pain came on his life. Thank you for showing us who you really are and what you're really about. Thank you for giving us an advocate that when the accuser accuses and accuses and accuses, Jesus says, I object. And he wins every time. Thank you for your love, your covenant of love with us. In the name of Jesus, amen. As you head out this morning, you may be in your land of us, and one of the things that we love to do is partner with you in prayer. Have someone standing down here right afterward at church, right after church that's willing to spend some time praying with you. So be safe out there. It's, it is St. Patrick's Day. I told a few people that in western New York, that always meant the last snowstorm of the year. I don't know why, but inevitably, March 17th, we'd get a snowstorm. So it was kind of fun to wake up this morning and say, where am I? Oh yeah, Illinois. Anyway, go ahead and stand up, say hi to somebody, and you have a great day.